Ugly double. Grab your Hello, hello, and good morning. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast here at 3CR with Judith and Patty. Yes, and welcome to everyone, and a beautiful day out there. It was great driving in this morning. It was, it was. It was a beautiful sunrise up there. Yeah. Early on. You come all the way up from the peninsula. I haven't. I cheated, oh, I cheated, cheated? this morning. Um, mm-hmm. I stayed in the city. I drove in yesterday. Ah. Um, I was fighting the inner city mosquitoes last night. It was, oh, really? It was good fun. This, way, this hot weather really brings them out. Right. No, I don't get any, but I think it's just because I'm on a first floor. I'm lucky. Ah, you're above. You're above yeah, the... Above the Maltese. Yeah. <laughs> lucky me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, morning to everyone out there. I hope everyone's got their shorts on or their skirts or whatever they want to wear to just to have a little bit of legs so they can breathe a bit today because it's going to be a hot day. Is it? Do you know what it's going to be around? Um, they're, they're suggesting 34. That's I'm hot. predicting 36. Are, are you? Yeah, okay, I'm going I'm, out on a limb. You're brave. I, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to make any predictions at all. But uh, yeah, I'm warned. I might, might find myself at the pool later. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. I hope I find myself at the ocean. I hope lucky people you. have plenty of lucky fluids today. You. I know, lucky yeah. me. Look at me showing off. Yeah. Um, big thanks to Earth Matters who were just on before. If you want to hear anything more about Earth Matters and their show or the show that just played then, their programming, please go to 3cr.org.au and follow the Earth Matters links. Yeah. Um, we've got a big show coming up today, don't we? We You've do. been busy, yeah. busy, busy. And so have you. So, yeah, coming up after eight... Coming up after eight, we've got um, Emily Castell and Matilda Stevens coming in to talk about Undercurrent, a nice little small organisation that looks to stem domestic violence and violence, gender-based violence within the community. That's a great name, Undercurrent. I mean, it's where you need to look really often to, to find the source of some of these problems. Yeah, big time. So I'm looking forward to hearing... Um, where this organisation has come from and how it works. I remember I stumbled across it. A friend told me about them and they hold workshops, workspaces within schools um, oh, and see. in the school yes. program but also within communities and just sort of talking about different matters that are often under the carpet and trying to just bring it out to the surface, which yeah. a lot of people have been doing with these 16 days of activism. I know some of us cringe with some of this, but it's also a good time to talk about it. Yes, and to get people thinking more deeply. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Time. And um, I'm going to be speaking to Jana Favero, who's um, the Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. She was at Manus Island last week, so we're going to hear what's happening there. And also, um, I mean... Yeah, so she's going to bring us up to date on their campaigns as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's very distressing and continues to be distressing. There, there's no good news coming out of that right now. No, it's very distressing, and it's yeah, it's. I'm interested to hear what your chat was, what your chat was like, and what they're coming out of there because. It doesn't seem like there's a light at the moment, which is... Yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh, then the other p- place, I'm going all the way to Alice Springs um, <laughs> later, yeah. uh, probably around, um, you know, 7.15, 7.30, somewhere around there. And uh, we're going to be speaking to um, Sabella Turner, who's with the Alice Springs Grandmothers, fairly new group that's formed. And they're, of course, wanting to keep children out of detention and out of the way of, um, of the police. So mm. she'll be talking about what's needed there. And also Hilary Tyler 
and we're going to also look at you know what's going on in that area. She also lives in Alice Springs, a doctor who's been there for 13 years. So she's going to see talk about what she sees on the mm. streets, uh, what's going on. And this is in light of the Royal Commission's findings coming out and the yes. um, the coalition not really responding yes, that well. Although they started earlier than that, uh, after the Four Corners report. About oh, the, the grandmother's organisation. Well, the the one that Hillary Taylor is part of, which is about, we'll, we'll hear more about keeping kids out of detention. All right, yeah. I will stay tuned. You're Good, here with... <laughs> I'm so glad you'll stay tuned, <laughs> Patty. That cheers me enormously. Good, well, you're here with Judith and Patty this morning. Nick is out doing his business, as always, doing it well. So shout-outs to him. Um, stick with us. It's a packed show. And, and, we look- and coming up soon will be Chris Limo, and we'll be talking about World AIDS Day, which is this Friday. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. Featuring over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different modified sports and watch a disabled water skiing demonstration. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Friday the 1st of December from 10am to 3pm at Crown Riverwalk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Morning, you're here. 3CR Radio. Um, we've got Chris on the line, don't we? Yes, we do. And uh, for people who may not be aware yet, uh, World AIDS Day is this Friday, December the 1st. And I'm, I'm just feeling a state of shock that it's <laughs> December already. Uh, but it is World AIDS Day. And it's been going about 29 years now, if can you believe. I think since 1988. So um, Chris Limo is a physician at Monash Health. But he's a lot more than that. He's a specialist in infectious diseases. He's the president of the Victorian African Health Action Network. And he'll be speaking at a forum on Friday. So welcome to 3CR, Chris. Are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks, uh, Judith. Oh, Good well, morning. Good morning. Yeah, great, great to have you with us this morning. And um, I thought I might ask you, first of all, just a bit about VAHAN, which is the Victorian uh, African Network. Um, sorry, Af- African Health Action Network. Can you tell me a little bit about what it does? Sure. So um, we're a community-based organisation um, which started, I guess we've started since 2014. Uh, it's a group of African-Australian, um, mainly health and social um, professionals, who are trying to get African communities in Australia, particularly in Victoria, more engaged with the uh, HIV um, viral hepatitis and sexual health, um, I guess, policies and initiatives in Australia. So one of the hallmarks of Australia's response to HIV has been a really close partnership between um, the affected communities and health professionals, scientists and governments that really was quite unique at the time in the in the late 80s. Yes, um, yes, Chris, I, I, I remember it so well. I was thinking when I saw 1988 as a... World AIDS Day, I was remembering a time to care, a time to act, which I think was the first strategy that came out under Neil yeah. Blewett. Yeah, and it was quite a, a moving and important document. Yeah, so, I mean, since then, um, the partnership has produced a lot of good research, produced a lot of really good um, public health and, and uh, health promotion and educating the public about HIV uh, and getting access to testing and to treatment. But the, the mainstay of that is engaging with the communities that are affected. And some of the communities 
have been less engaged than others, and one of them is African communities in Australia. So Vahan was set up to try and rectify that so that we can get everybody involved in making things better. Yeah, oh, that's great. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the significance of World AIDS Day. It's been going for quite a while now. Like, yes, I said yeah. earlier, 29 years. Yeah, so um, I think it's so 1988. So that's the year after I came to Australia. Oh, wow, um, okay. So I came back to Australia. And uh, so that was sort of in the thick of it. Um, and in those days, AIDS was basically a terminal condition. It was, you know, got a diagnosis. People were always, almost always really sick and treatments were not that um, effective. And a lot of the early activism was around getting access to treatments which helped prolong people's lives a bit, um, but didn't really um, prevent the progression of, of HIV. And then we sort of fast forward to now, and HIV is a treatable chronic disease like diabetes. Yes. Um, people who get diagnosed early have an almost, um, you know, have a much longer life expectancy. And if they're young and otherwise fit, it's almost normal life expectancy. Yes. Um, just as long as they take medication. But with that, there have been new challenges and um, the efforts to both remember what has been achieved by everybody who's involved, yeah. um, to remember the people who have um, died or, you know, become ill along the way and also to keep the efforts going to meet the new challenges. So World AIDS Day is a way of doing that, not just in Australia, but also around the world, because, of course, um, in countries with less resources than Australia, uh, things are getting better, but a lot a lot worse than here. Yes, for sure. And um, with that change, I guess there's always, a, you know, to becoming more of a chronic illness, because I'm sure you and I certainly remember you know, all the photos in a lot of the gay publications, gay press at the time of, of faces of people who, who had died. And it was just, um, yeah, it was such a sad thing to open those papers and see those beautiful faces. But has it be, have people become more complacent since now that it's a chronic illness? Has that changed the way people see it? Um, I don't know about complacent. Uh, people are less scared of it because ah, um, yes. everyone, you know, it was just terrifying before. Yes. And uh, I mean, in when people have had their friends, you know, sicken and die around them, and people look sick, as you said, um, you know, that quite means there's quite a lot of stigma as well when yes. someone looks unwell and, and they're about to die. Mm. And when I was doing some research with African communities a few years ago, and most people um, who remembered HIV in Africa in the 80s and 90s, that's how they remembered it too. Um, that people looked sick and and then they died and it was just really terrifying. So now, um, you know, someone can have HIV and not look unwell uh, and stay well as long as they're taking the medication. Is, it's is less it... terrifying, but it's still, um, I wouldn't say that people have become complacent because it does mean that it's an imposition. So it's like another chronic illness. It means you have to take medications. It means you have to see doctors regularly. It means you have to have tests and you have to be mindful that, you know, if you don't um, take care that, you know, you, your partner, sexual partner might might be put at risk. Mm -hmm. um, so it is it is something that is a, a burden still. Um, and so complacency, I think, is misplaced. But okay. I don't think people are complacent. Some people well, might I'm, not I'm, know. I'm pleased to hear that. I, I yeah. wondered... Um, I wondered if perhaps it wasn't getting the kind of attention that it, it still requires, you know, as far as I don't think it's getting the attention, yeah. Mm. Uh, 
most outside the gay community and probably some migrant communities, there isn't much awareness of HIV in Australia. I yes. I mean, I remember, you know, it, it was on everyone's minds at one point, and now I even run into people who don't know so much about it. So this, this has yeah. surprised me. Yeah. Well, the they last, again, when I remember in 1987-88, there was the Grim Reaper campaign. Yes. Um, that was the last big um, public, general public advertising around HIV. And it had it had mixed results, didn't didn't it? I mean, some pe people felt it uh, promoted um, discrimination or, or added to yeah, negative attitudes. Mm. I think so. And the thing is, there was no follow up to that, so that that's what people were left with. Yes. So unfortunately, yes. some people do encounter prejudices amongst um, you know some doctors, for example, whose last um, you know teaching about HIV might have been in university or during their hospital training before they went into community practice, uh, and their last other memory of it is those ads. So, um, you know, there are still some long, long um, lasting after effects of that, you know, that advertising. Right. So, so one, mm, so one thing World AIDS Day does is, is offer an opportunity to change some of those perceptions. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And, and in a way, is that a part of um, what you're doing at the forum on Friday? Yeah. So um, I'm speaking on a panel with uh, in very illustrious company, uh, Sharon Lewin is a, a, a giant in um, HIV circles, leading the, search, the research for a cure in Australia or in, in Victoria. She's one of the key people. Um, but yeah, I guess one of the um, one of the things that I, I've noticed when I'm working in general medicine. So I work in a suburban hospital in southeast Melbourne, and I see a lot of general health issues. Yes. The parallels between HIV and diabetes sort of keep coming back to me because. HIV is becoming more like diabetes, so more like a, you know, a manageable chronic disease. Mm -hmm. um, but I see diabetes as coming like you know the HIV of the 21st century in a way because all of the bad effects um, of both of those conditions uh, depend on access to good care. Yes, um, indeed. And that means you have to know what it's about, so you have to actually be educated and understand what what your health um, maintaining your health entails. But it also means you have to have the money, you have to have the language skills, That's and you have to right. have the, you know, the support to engage with care and support. And yes, there are people who are left out. And I'm and is that you talking in Australia? Sorry, I'm sorry. Are you talking in Australia that there are people left out, or are you talking yes. internationally? Yes. Uh, both, but um, mm -hmm. it's like we're like a microcosm of the world. So the people who um, uh, people who are migrants who don't speak English fluently, who are not citizens or permanent residents who don't have access to Medicare, they still face incredible barriers to getting access to treatment, which could prolong their lives and make them feel healthy and enable them to get on with things. Um, so we still have a few hundred people around the country who don't have access to Medicare, who have HIV, who go through immense struggles just to keep themselves well um, because they can't um, have access to subsidised treatment like you know, permanent residents and citizens can. Well, that's that's a huge issue and uh, something that really needs to be taken on board and addressed. So from what you're saying, I can see that there are still challenges in Australia. And at this point, we haven't even really talked about what's happening in Africa, which, again, you know, there are many countries and I'm sure, you know, many different approaches. But I think we're just about out of time, Chris. But okay. I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. And I think it would be good maybe to, to come on another time and, and look at, uh, you know, what is going on in, in, in countries of Africa, uh, if you would, if you could. 
Sure, that'd be a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, and all the best on Friday. And uh, thank you very much, too. and and the great work that uh, you're doing in Vahan, as well thank as you. you know raising awareness say, on World AIDS Day. Yeah, yeah. I just say we're having a a, a discussion at twelve uh, thirty at the Doherty Institute, at the same site as the uh, as the community forum, uh, talking about positive families, so the influence of um, HIV and families, you know, pregnancy, child rearing, and so on. Oh, that's um, really important. So, yeah. Yes. If people are interested in that, um, welcome to contact me on our website. Um, uh, if you contact me on vahan.com.au. Vahan.com.au. We can put that on yeah. our, our website as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, right. th- thank you so much for getting up early. And I think you've got some children to get to school now. Indeed, I have. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You're with. 3CR Breakfast, we were just speaking to Dr. Chris Lemon about um, World AIDS Day. He'll be talking on December the 1st, Friday, this Friday, at a forum there to break the stigma around AIDS and update the community who may not be in the know about. That's right. And in fact, the title of that, that panel is um, The Evolution of HIV, From the Grim Reaper to You Equals You. Yeah, on 3CR Breakfast. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. Featuring over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different modified sports and watch a disabled water skiing demonstration. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Friday the 1st of December from 10am to 3pm at Crown Riverwalk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. 3CR supporter. When you're tired, when you're lonely, you can just reach out and on. No, I'll be there. I'll help you weather. together nothing's ever
Listening to 3CR Breakfast. That was Shouse Love Tonight. It's a beautiful tune with a bit of soul. A lot of the proceeds that go towards the Domestic Violence Victoria Resource Centre. Terrific. That's great. And um, I guess we'd all been kind of riveted to the television looking at some of the images um, coming out of Manus Island, especially last week as people were uh, forcibly removed. So, yeah, and yesterday on, on Tuesday breakfast, they had the voices of some of the men there talking about what was happening. On Monday, I went over to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre uh, to find out, you know, what that organisation is doing uh, to support refugees and asylum seekers. So I spoke, I was lucky I spoke to Jane Favero. She's the Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, based in Footscray. And... Um, she talked to me about the ongoing crisis because she's been there. She was there last week. And uh, I started just by asking her about ASRC and how it's organised. We currently have over 1,500 volunteers who are helping us to deliver services. The ASRC started 16 years ago when it started being fully staffed by volunteers. So that has remained as the heart and soul as the organisation. And our volunteer support combined with our community fundraising is the only way we're able to deliver the services that we do. And we have volunteers from all walks of life, all demographics, all ages, all of different political persuasions, because as people have recognised, this actually isn't an issue of left and right. It's about right and wrong. And they want to do something to rectify that by coming and volunteering at ASRC. So, Jana, the first thing I'd like to ask you about is... What's happening for the men on Manus Island right now? On the 31st of October, the Australian government abandoned the detention camp and cut off all food, water and medicines to the, to the men who are inside. And then the PNG officials, immigration and mobile police unit went in last Thursday and Friday and forcibly removed all remaining men and moved them to one of three transit facilities also on Manus Island that are not finished, are under construction and ill-equipped to accept. Um, I think there are now about 600 men who are there. And you're saying three facilities, so are they in different parts of Manus Island? 
Yes, that's right. The three facilities are East Lorongo Transit Centre, West Lorongale Transit Centre and Hillside House, and they're all on separate parts of the island. So they've effectively been split up. That's correct. I mean, men who have lived together for, for many years, who have had camaraderie, who have been in solidarity with each other, who have cohabitated because they've just had to form those bonds and they've now been separated, which is creating an additional layer of mental health impacts. And what's the situation in the new accommodation? is pretty bare bones. I know that Minister Dutton is saying that it's like building a new house and people moving in, but I think it would be more building a new shell and expecting people to move in. I was on Manus Island last week and spoke to men there who had moved to the transit facilities and they were talking about a lack of water, a lack of food, that there were beds that weren't even constructed. We know on Friday night when all the men were forcibly removed that 57 did not have a bed. So that really goes to show facilities are not ready. Doctors have been advising that men should have up to 15 bottles of water a day. The men were reporting to us that they were only given three bottles. We would have liked to have visited the um, transit centre to see for ourselves, but unfortunately access um, has been denied for many people, including most recently for MSF, who are there trying to provide medical treatment. Just tell me what MSF is. Medicine Sans Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders, who are currently on Manus Island with official authorisation to see the men on Manus, but then when they've tried to access them in the transit centres, they have not been allowed. So what is the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre doing for this particular group of refugees? First and foremost, we visited Manus Island last week to see the situation for ourselves. We do have a detention advocacy program at ASRC that supports men, women and children in detention onshore and offshore. What does that support actually look like? What it mainly means is that we're at the end of the phone for them. If they need to be linked to lawyers or to doctors, and most importantly for the men on Manus at the moment is linked to medical professionals, they call us and we can link them to psychiatrists, to specialists. It also means we can try and link them to lawyers if they need review of their cases, plus also for many who for example, are on Nauru and suffering from medical conditions, we can try and advocate them for being medically evacuated. There were reports that uh, men had their mobile phones confiscated when they were removed from Manus. Are they still able to be in touch? Some are and some aren't. The men are pretty incredible in terms of sharing their phones around. Um, They're really looking out for each other. So if there are men who are sick who were some who had their phones confiscated, the other men are then going and visiting them and then so we can talk to them. I also read a report, uh, several reports, that when people closed down the centre last week, refugees, asylum seekers' personal belongings were destroyed. Is that the case? And what impact would it have? There's been um, numerous reports. Anyone who's seen the footage coming out of the centre would be able to bear witness and see that. There were also local churches who had donated a whole lot of food that was then destroyed. There's the really disturbing report of the man whose um, pet dog he took on the bus with him and then it was actually thrown out of the the window. But yes, you can see from all the footage that that things were destroyed, including the men's possessions. Um, We've got reports from the men that they don't have any, they don't have clothing, they don't even have toilet trees at the moment so we've been looking into how we can facilitate that assistance we're working with local NGOs on the ground who are a network who are able to get some stuff to the men um, which is one of the reasons that we're fundraising at the moment. You know when we've had bushfires in Australia people always talk about the loss of their photographs as one of the the big parts of that trauma so I was wondering whether in their personal belongings it might have been photographs of, of family members or mementos that have been sent. Do you know whether that's the case? When we were in the centre last week, we definitely saw a lot of photos that were up. Some of the men who were forcibly removed, they didn't have time to 
get anything. So I'm assuming that also included their, their photos. They certainly didn't have the chance to bring a lot of stuff with them. Whether Papua New Guinea authorities have now gone back to collect that, I'm not sure. But the men are reporting that they're really left without anything. And the, the difficulty here is the lack of access and independent access to be able to go into the centres to verify it. Because we have got a government and an immigration minister supported by a team of PR and media narrative professionals who are putting out one narrative, which I can say after being on Manus Island is an, is a deceitful narrative. The facilities aren't ready. The men are in dire need of medical treatment. The men are not the ones who are trashing the centres. All of these things are being said by our government and our immigration minister, things that are completely untrue. Tell me about, uh, say, three of the campaigns you have going right now. Our big campaign and focus is to end indefinite mandatory detention and we're advocating to do that. A lot of that is the focus currently on Manus because it's immediate and right in front of us and we were there last week. But it also does include what's happening on Nauru, which is which is just as horrific for the men, women and children who are there. So one of our large campaigns is really around um, evacuate now and that's for Manus and Nauru. A second campaign is fast track processing. People who arrived by boat and then arrived in Australia over four years ago were not even allowed to apply for protection for four years. So for four years they weren't sure what was happening. Then all of a sudden they were expect to apply in a very short time frame with limited access to any kind of legal assistance. Our right track campaign is looking to restore the legal process so that they would be treated fairly and their human rights would be upheld. We're advocating directly and lobbying with politicians and then we are also providing those direct services to people seeking asylum. The biggest campaigns we've got at the moment is our Christmas appeal. As many of your listeners probably know, we are fiercely and proudly independent, which means we don't accept any federal government money. Has the Christmas appeal started? Yes, we launched our Christmas appeal last week. As part of that, we've also launched an open letter, which is an open letter to people seeking asylum and refugees who are in detention onshore and offshore, just to say that we stand with them in solidarity. So if people are interested in signing on to that open letter, they can either go to our website and do it, or they can also go to our Facebook page. And we really just want to be able to show the men, women and children in detention that we are standing with them and there are people who are being a voice for them and we are watching and we do care for them and have compassion towards them, which is probably a different feeling that they're getting from the Australian government at the moment. And what kind of response have you had to the letter writing campaign? Fantastic. We have, I think it's over 1,800 people sign on to the open letter, which is great. We have also been asking people to call Prime Minister Turnbull and Minister Dutton, which has been a success. I think they've put on their answering machines to try and screen calls, which shows it is working. We really would encourage people to keep doing that because we know that there are so many Australians out there who really are shocked at the treatment of people seeking asylum and refugees in our name by our government. And so we're asking them to pick up the phone and make a phone call to our leaders and let them know that and then also sign on to our open letter so the men, women and children are getting a direct message of support, which after being on Manus, I can see how important that is to them. The men just kept saying, thank you so much, thank you so much, and could see that just by us being there, it gave them extra strength, extra hope and extra resilience, which is so important at the moment. And uh, it is so important at the moment. I'm going to sign that letter today and make a donation. I mean, I think it's a bit like 3CR, you know, every little bit counts. So uh, that was Jana, uh, sorry, not Jana, Jana, uh, Jana Favero, the Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource mm. Centre. 
And, um, you know, when I was there to speak to her, just amazing energy in the place. And you know, I left around lunchtime, which was difficult because wonderful smells coming out of the kitchen. But, uh, you know, people were busy chopping and getting themselves organized. So um, very active organization. Big time. Great to get some sounds coming out of there. I think a lot of people will appreciate hearing an interview like that because it's quite hard to hear really what's going on with different views. Exactly. Dissemination. It's exactly. nice to hear that Yana's been out there. Jana. Jana, pardon no, me. That's okay. I'm working on yeah. it too. Yes. Yeah, so. Nice to hear that Jana's been there and, and yeah. can relay some of that information and first hand account. So, coming up now, we're going to be speaking to Sabella Turner from Alice Springs, but just some background. This week, Change the Record, which is um, a coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander human rights legal and community organisations, so quite a a big coalition, strong coalition, published Free to Be Kids, which is a national action plan or plan of action to change the youth justice system and and prevent uh, abuse of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in in prisons. And they're not just looking at the Northern Territory, which the um, Royal Commission did. I think they're talking about across Australia. This is clearly an issue for across Australia. So across, yeah, a judicial system, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the Alice Springs Grandmothers, which is a relatively new group, and has been concerned about the incarceration of Aboriginal children, supports the new plan. And I spoke to Sabella Turner yesterday morning before she went off to work. So she got up earlier than I did, I have to say, because of the time difference. Um, and uh, she's a spokesperson for the grandmothers, and she was talking about the importance of communities working together. So here's Sabella. First of all, Judith, I'd like to thank you for having me on to this morning. And thank you for making the time. And good morning, listeners in Melbourne. My name is Sabella Kwari Turner. I'm from the newly formed island, the grandmothers group in Alice Spring, uh, Northern Territory. And why are the grandmothers formed? As grandmothers, we formed because we were concerned about our grandchildren walking at, late at night in the street and um, being apprehended by the police and um, taking them in, in without um, adult supervision. Yeah, that was our main concern. We need our kids to be on their traditional country, not in custody. Kids don't need to be beyond bars. They need to be out in their homeland. What are you doing uh, to stop them being in custody? So we have um, rallies, marches, just to um, show the um, government or whoever, you know, officials, that we are supporting our grandchildren. And sometimes we have radio interviews and that. I noticed that one of the things you said in your press release is that uh, one of the failures of the justice system is the lack of consultation. Yeah, that's a big one we have here in Alice Springs, Northern Territory. There's no consultation. You know, everything's taken away from us. It's frozen our responsibilities. You know, nobody's sitting down talking together now. As before, you know, in the 70s, you could, the, community, the community was together, working as one. But now, its communities are not supporting each other, and there's a down, big downfall there, where the government is just making rules to um, suit them and not suit the communities. Sabella, if you were talking to the government, what would you want to tell them? 
from my perspective, what I'm talking about from my traditional values, you know, we need to look after our children and we need to come together and work on a plan that's going to work. One side should make plans, make decisions all the time. It's got to be a whole group of people that make plans for our future children. Yes. And it's the best of, best of interest for everybody. You say also in in your press release that um, the Territory Response Group, or the TRG, is not the answer. What do you know about the Territory Response Group? It's, that's not the solution, getting these people to work. It, it's the community's responsibility. Why are they getting outside people to deal with our issues? Well, we can deal with it ourselves in our own community. There are no Indigenous people on these uh, front bench, you know, work doing the job. There's no employment, there's no training for Aboriginal people at all. We have an all strip from our employment, from everything what we've done. And we like to see government come back and sit down and talk with us and talk to the community. That we are, our children are affected. Yes. So they're affected from alcohol, drugs, all these things. We're learning. I'm learning about it because I didn't grow up in that era. Right. So what are the changes that you're seeing now? When I was growing up, I grew up in a stable community, you know, where the old people made decisions in their own communities. I moved back to Alice Springs and I've learned a lot about the European, the Western um, culture, and now I've you learned about alcohol and drugs, you know, and now it's even getting worse. I have 16 grandchildren and six great-grandchildren plus extended, extended from my brothers, my sisters, my cousins. Good reason to be concerned about the children. You know, it's our heart and our spirit. We have to put them into the children. Yes. What we have in our spirit, we have to pass it on to our children. Help show them that they have been, you know, supported and we're out here to support them. And how we can plan, you know, to work together to make these little children feel safe and loved. So what would you like to see the government be doing? What changes do you want from the government? Like we have to start getting together as territory and do lots of work around our children, young people. Yes. Society, trauma, you know, all these things. They don't know what it is. You know, we got to teach them what it is. Yes. In a good way. So they can present their relevance, you know, present their matters to relevant services in town. And yes. they have a lot of services in Alice Springs which our children don't use. And they are not aware of these services. So there are some options for the children. Children have to be spoken to and informed them of their services available for them to go to, you know, to get maybe to get counselling, maybe to, you know? Yes. Talk to a psychologist, things like that. Yeah. And at, at the very beginning, you said, you know, prison incarceration is not the answer. It's not the answer. It's only making things worse. Because our little ones, they're in this different era. I can say it's a different era. We're all trying to keep up with them, you know? 
Yes. Yeah, for sure. We've got to keep up with them because they're on the fast train now and we've got to jump on board and, you know, keep up with them and teach them whatever we have, you know? Yes, it sounds like you'll be learning from each other. Yes, we've got to, you know, we're going to learn together and listen to what they want too, you know, their, their needs. When a child is traumatized, it affects the ch- children, you know, their body, spirit. Yes. And relationship with the family. Yes. Yeah. Everything is affected. Better to work with the children, you know, instead of treating them like terrorists and so forth, you know. They are not terrorists. They are just children, just, you know, mm. running amok in town and trying, yelling, screaming out for help. Who's treating them like terrorists? Well, it's the police. You know, the police, that they handcuff men all, you know, and rough-handle them and everything like that. Chuck mm. them in the paddy wagon, you know, and it's not... That shouldn't be how a child should, you know, be treated. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Sabella, do you actually go out in the streets to see what's going on out there? I, I live here in town and I see it and I talk to the little ones, you know, when I see them in town, you know? Yes. When I see them up late at night when I go shopping and that, I talk to a lot of the little ones, you know, why don't you go home? So I support them and encourage them and give them some advice, you know, what will happen if you hang around in the streets at night, you know? situation in Alice Spring is just getting together as a community and talking about it. You know, we have a lot of organizations, a lot of people in town, we do their little work and I wish they could get, we could get together and start planning on what, you know, what should be available for these young ones. And you think more of that, not, not enough of that is happening. Yeah, not enough of that is happening. All the best with your work. Thank you very much. I'm struggling ahead, so I hope we achieve this one. Me too. And uh, I do very much, uh, you know, hope that they can make some change. And uh, as Sabella was saying, it's very important to have the grassroots groups involved, Aboriginal groups that are working on the streets, that are seeing what's going on, and also that amazing access to country and knowledge that, uh, you know, to share with young people. Mm, and listening to those kids and giving agency to those kids because they don't have it in the system, that place of voice. So it's great to hear her sentiments there. Yes, and, and Sabella also is working in primary health care in Alice Springs as well and works with young people 12 to 25 years old, So, which she loves, she told me. To just I asked, you know, what's work looking like today? And she, she laughed and said, it's always busy, <laughs> always busy. So, yeah, it was great to speak to her. And after speaking to Sabella, I also spoke to Hilary Tyler, who also lives in Alice Springs. She's a doctor there, and she's a member of the Shut Youth Prisons Group. Um, she, we spoke about the Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory and the findings from that, and also about the Northern Territory Response Group. And, uh, after, what's the, after the Four Corners report last year showing the abuses and tortures in Dondal, we started meeting and we formed a group called Shut Youth Prisons. And we've been meeting over the last year and just in the last, I suppose, six months or so, out of Shut Youth Prisons has arisen this grandmothers group. So a group of predominantly Aranda grandmothers who have a particular connection to these issues 
So everyone has like an interest and everyone knows somebody who's in Dondale or has just come out of Dondale or has been taken by the government and is part of this new stolen generations. And so out of Shut East Prisons, our group, this grandmother's group has arisen with their own particular concerns and own particular personal connection with the, with the issues. Right. And what's your role in the grandmother's group? Well, I'm not a grandmother and I'm a non-Aboriginal person. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm from Aotearoa originally. Um, so my role in the grandmother's group is to support, to um, facilitate access to resources, to facilitate you know, media stuff, to help organise in whatever way. So on Sunday, we all sat together and and wrote that media release and wrote that statement together. And the role of the non-Aboriginal people in that group was to facilitate that process. So that's one example of how we're helping. So as a non-Aboriginal person who is an adult living in Alice Springs, I see the injustice every day and I see the brutality every day that is perpetrated on kids. So I may not be an Aboriginal kid, but I'm going to stand in solidarity with the Aboriginal kids because what's happening is horrific. Yes. And uh, you talked about, you know, the grandmas, like almost everybody knowing a child, someone who's been affected by this. I would imagine that people also know the police and the people that are perpetuating this system of incarceration. And there are there is overlap. One of the grandmothers was talking to me the other day about how, you know, back in the old days, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, like the police were much more part of the community. Like there might be a police who'd come to her place and say, hey, you know, your kid's like, you know, acting up. We've brought them home, you know, let's look out for them. Yes. And there was a relationship there. And she was saying that that relationship is gone. Mm. That the police aren't interacting with the communities in that way anymore. They're not part of the community. They're coming in, they're taking the kids, they're arresting the kids. But there's no... Like, families often don't get told for hours and hours and hours or sometimes overnight that their kid has been has been put in the watch house. So, so things, it sounds from that story that things are really going backwards. It would seem like that to me. I've been in Alice Springs for 13 years now, so not all that long, but I've seen a difference, you know, an increasing militarisation of the police. Um, There are an increasing number of kids being taken. I've seen an increasing amount of explicit racism. You know, in so many ways that militarisation has been commented on across Australia in other situations and settings as well, whether it's the refugees, the asylum seekers, or yeah. even, you know, or the way uh, protesters are treated. It seems oh, to be terrible. a very a big issue. One of the things that's mentioned in the press release is the Territory Response Group. Is this something yes. new? Well, the Territory Response Group is that, um, that, part of, that specialised part of the Northern Territory Police, which um, is a counter-terrorist and hostage rescue unit. So when we listened to the police commissioner on ABC a few days ago, he was talking about the need for the TRG because, you know, there are kids that get on roofs and there are kids that steal wallets. Yes, terrorists. And that is, yeah, that is being used to justify these camouflage police with night vision and thermal vision goggles 
potentially with military-grade weapons, roaming the streets at night, that's not going to make me feel safe. No, won't make anyone feel safe. And it'll end and it'll just be terrible. These, this group is not, um, they're not trained in conflict resolution yeah. in a verbal de-escalation way. They're the ones that get brought in when you've got to ram down the door of a house to release a hostage who's being held captive. Yes. Totally, and it's just outrageous that it gets brought in like 10 days after the Royal Commission gets released, you know, to have this as a response, an increasingly punitive, scary response when the Royal Commission is urging people to move in a different direction. I mean, that's the great irony, isn't it? I mean, it's coming, what, not even a week or a little over a week after the yeah. Royal Commission's come out, report has come out, yeah. recommending quite different approaches. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. And it's really scary, you know, and it's, it's like every time a report comes out, you know, it's often used as an excuse to increase, like, military type or police or criminalisation or some other sort of power, it's despite the recommendations of whatever report has come out. So it seems like, you know, it's almost a waste of time. People are brought together, <laughs> people have endless conversations, people come up with good ideas uh, that represent the views of many people, and the government ignores it. I mean, it's one of the things that was said about the, this Royal Commission, is, is it going to be like all the other reports and left to get dusty on a shelf? Yes. One of the things evident in this report is that while the horrors of youth detention were clearly noted, the recommendations really didn't live up to it and were inadequate in so many ways. Like raising the age of criminal responsibility only to 12 from 10. Like it's, it's completely inadequate. But I think part of the reason why that happened was they wanted to make recommendations, not that were world's best practice, but recommendations that they thought the government might enact. The purpose of a report is to put best practice out there. Pragmatism can apply it. But if you don't put world's best practice in a report, then you're failing everybody. I think it's interesting that uh, many of the organisations put in the age of 12 to be, you know, the criminal, criminal responsibility to raise to, to 12 in their submissions, but are now lobbying for the age to be increased to 14. Right. So I find that, like, strange, but clearly people have realised that 12 is inadequate. Right, so this is more of an afterthought than, than things, something hmm. people thought about during the process of developing the recommendations. And the Royal Commission was very short, you know. It was the shortest Royal Commission, I think, ever, you know. So it was very hard for people to get all the issues under their belt and put in the submission by the timelines and stuff. And it's been an, an evolving discourse, which, you know, this changing idea of what the age of criminal responsibility should be shows. The fact that it was ever, the age of criminal responsibility was ever 10 years old for Aboriginal children is... Uh, very scary. That was uh, Hillary Taylor, Tyler, sorry, Hillary Tyler, talking about the recommendations of the Royal Commission into the protection and detention of children in the Northern Territory, and the need for Australia to do a lot better. And I can't help thinking about, you know, the the contrast between the the Territory Defence Group, the the anti-terrorist uh, police with all that equipment 
coming out against, you know, 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds even. Um, and, and then we compare that with um, Pine Gap, which is not seen as a problem by our government, which is potentially a nuclear target if there were a war. I mean, it just seems a total contrast between those two events all around Alice Springs. Mm, such a high ball of absurdity shown by the Australian government. Just <laughs> well said, Paddy, absurdity. It really sure. is, just coming yeah. in with those infrared goggles and just making excuses to buy bigger toys and, and forgetting yes. that they're dealing with children's lives and really... Or are they forgetting? Anyway, it was great to get that perspective here in Melbourne and hear a little insight of what is going on. And hopefully that Royal Commission doesn't land on dusty shelves and gets picked up and community gets behind it and says and doesn't forget the images that we saw and the hard work that has been done. Yes, I mean, I still, I still remember the uh, report on Aboriginal deaths in custody and, uh, you know, where the recommendations were not taken up or not followed. And so it's very sad when that happens. And, and of course, people's hopes get raised. Mm. You know, people think, oh, at last, you know, something's going to happen. Mm. And then it doesn't. So anyway, hopefully we'll keep this one on the boil, keep it going. Like all good things, it is a slow, a slow burn to get something to happen. I know that some of the Royal Commissions that have gone past, say the Stolen Generation, there is still work going through. True. It is, it is just slow and steady yes and it takes hard work dedication to get yes. that across the line yes and that's exactly what sabella was saying too you know it's a long road yeah yeah and a tough road yeah. um in other old news um in news of the day that's been going around i'm not sure if you listeners out there um or yourself judith have been keeping up with the white paper but the white paper feels like it's very much trying to position itself and talk. so is this the foreign policy yeah white? the foreign yeah. policy white paper which is a piece of diplomacy really released by the australian government the one the latest one its predecessor was in 2003 um john howard's government released that one so this one is a new one um, and it's in line with the military white paper that just came out. And to be honest, from an outlook, it looks like it's very much very military, political news speak. Um, a lot of different commentators have taken different things from it. Uh, there's been a few people in the conversation from different backgrounds. Susan Harris brings her law perspective, and she feels like it's a diplomatic piece of writing that's aimed at showing the global community where Australia is looking with its foreign policy. Um, she's a bit more positive about Australia's pullback from um, US dependency and moving into sovereignty. I know Turnbull used a lot of loaded language, as he would, um, in his address of the public and the world with his speech. And it was very much to say that Australia has to become more of a sovereign state. Yeah, I think I saw some, I did see that reporting and, uh, you know, Turnbull suggesting Australia is now ready to stand on its own two feet. Mm. And then other commentators are definitely thinking it's just a form, a very lengthy way of fence sitting. Yes, I mean, that was, I've also read those comments as well. So here we are, you know, poised between China and the US. I mean, I think that's part of what's being talked about here in our foreign yeah, policy. Yeah, big time. And Susan also brought up some great points where a lot of foreign policy elements that could be included haven't been included, say, for the the global or have been an afterthought, say, climate change, oh, foreign yes. aid, and some other things that are very important, whereas I think the, oh, the white paper absolutely. really just backed up the military stance and was like, we're still going to, we need to invest 
if you have sovereignty, you need military. And just that oh, military yeah. speed. I, I hadn't made that connection between, you know, standing on our own two feet and sovereignty and military. I guess standing on our own two feet doesn't mean moving the Americans out of Pine Gap then. Yeah, I, I don't know. It'd be very interesting. And then a lot of different people, Tony Walker, um, seemed to think uh, it was almost an apology in a way to China and it's how it, the... Um, the what do we there was the white paper that just came before that the military white paper that came yes. that wasn't trying to take away from Australia's and stand on its own two feet and was oh more so it was same. very much going down the line of the alliance with yeah, the US I the alliance see. with the yeah. US and ties with the so, United so, countries so so this is almost a companion piece in a way it does really come across that way yeah yeah which makes sense in a setting because it has come um, a year after. Um, the military piece that's come through. Anyway, it's an interesting and it's an interesting conundrum. I don't know how much it'll get through. It just yeah. feels like I remember a comment. Um, I think it was from um, the Lowy Institute. Someone commented about the, you know, and I don't have the words quite right, but something about having sold the family farm or to the United <laughs> States. Anyway, I, I'll, I'll try and uh, check yeah. on that maybe for for next week if we're going to follow this. Yeah, yeah. Karen Middleton, um, a great reporter from the Saturday paper, sums it up. Very well, I feel like, at the end of her article, if you ever want to get around it. It's certainly a study in the exercise of power and struggle to persuade others that the current order of things is worth defending. Right. Which the th- current order of the things. The current order of things. The status quo. Basically. Yeah, the status quo. Read mm. it how you will, whether it's America pulling back, whether it's Australia's current state of affairs in its homeland. Mm. Yeah, and just I did mention Alice Springs just a few minutes ago, and of course the Pine Gap Pilgrims trial is now o- over to the extent that they have been um, found guilty, and uh, certainly the the chief prosecutor there was calling for um, custodial sentence, prison sentences, but it, he emphasised that uh, you know there are many forms, so it could be like home arrest or you know there's different things, but certainly called for the repeat offenders. Uh, to do some time, and people like Margaret Pistorius, who who came in and talked to us a bit about their lament at Pine Gap. So we're, I think, all waiting now anxiously to see what the sentencing actually is. That's that's the next step, mm. and I think that's next Monday, December fourth. We're going to hear how they're how they're going to be sentenced. Mm. Big time. And if you didn't hear about that, they defended themselves in court, didn't they? They did defend themselves in court. there was two cases. That's right. And it was the Alice Springs News that uh, provided, I think, the best reporting coming out of um, coming out of that that trial and daily and sometimes I was, you know, I was because I was so interested because of having spoken to Margaret I, every evening I would just go and sometimes we'll come in at like nine o'clock in the evening sometimes it'd be there at, at six so yeah it really um yeah it was it was really interesting reporting mm-hmm. oh sorry I'm just looking right here let me I'm flipping through my papers so look here this was the last report that came out and um the re- the reporter is um Kieran Fanane, or Fanan, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but she's the reporter for the Alice Springs Times. And um, she said, um, yeah, she quoted that, you know, younger members of the, which is the quote from the, the Crown, um, Michael McHugh. The, uh, so he pointed out that imprisonment can take different forms, such as suspended sentences and various conditions. However, for the older offenders, Margaret Pistorius and Jim Dowling, 
Given their long history of similar offending, he argued for actual time to be served, most particularly for Mr. Dowling, who he said, to use a colloquialism, is on the street and will continue to offend. <laughs> so, but but the young, good news, the younger members of the group might be susceptible to rehabilitation. So rehabilitation for peace protesters. Here we go. Here <laughs> we go. National plan running across the country. Isn't it just? Um, however, they gave little indication in their submissions that this would be the case, that they could be rehabilitated. Anyway, look. And these, are devote, these are devote Christians. Do you reckon the Christian lobby in Australia again? going to get behind them to help. Oh, no doubt. I'm No doubt. I think the voices will be loud and clear. <laughs> look after these people. Yeah, look after our, let our people go. <laughs> let our people go, big time. You're here on 3CR with Judith and Patty. We were just talking news of the day. Up next, we've got Undercurrent with Emily Castell and Matilda Stevens. You're here with us. <laughs> Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. Green Left Weekly Radio. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. Tune in every Friday morning at 8am on 3CR. Hello, good morning. I hope everyone's got their sun hat out and is feeling the heat in a good way. You're here with Judith, Patty, Emily... And Matilda, how are you both? Yeah, really well, thanks. Beautiful. Yeah, you both come from Undercurrent and you're in here to talk about the organisation Undercurrent that runs community workshops along with um, school-based workshops, I understand. Could you just tell myself and the listeners um, what is Undercurrent and where it came from? Yeah, sure. Um, so Undercurrent is a community education project um, that's been running for about six years now. Um, and primarily we run a violence prevention program um, with a focus on prevention around sexual assault and family violence. Um, And I guess we do that by running respectful relationships workshops, consent workshops, sex um, education, um, like talking about violence, how to name violence, how to recognise violence, and also really importantly how to support people who have experienced violence. Um, and so we do that in schools, but sometimes we also do that in unis, TAFEs, other community groups that ask us to come and run a workshop with them. Um, we run PDs with teachers, which I think is a really amazing thing to do, and sometimes with social workers. And we just completed a huge seven-week public workshop series that was open for the whole public to attend. I saw that. How did that go down? 
Yeah, really well. It was um, incredibly well attended, actually. We had around 100 people, sometimes more, attending each one. I was quite blown away, actually, that people are just like really keen to be having these conversations because there just aren't many spaces or organisations like Undercurrent Mm. that I guess are committed to, yeah, building skills, building literacy around violence and violence prevention. Yeah, and is it a lot of the violence that people don't see that you're talking about or only, say, the perpetrator and the victim of feeling of that violence? Yeah, I would also say that, like, a lot of the work that we do is actually about visibilizing myths that exist around who experiences violence who's causing violence and also why that violence is being caused so i think most of what we do is actually opening up a space for people to have conversations Mm. and for us to kind of highlight some of the contradictions that exist in the stories that we have been told um, around violence and what are some of those main contradictions Well, we're coming up saying those public workshops. I know that there might be many, many, but what was like a strong theme that was coming up there where you thought a lot of people who attended these workshops walked away with and were like, whoa, that sort of demystified a myth that was surrounding violence. Yeah. Can you think of any? I'm just like, there's so many. I'm like, how do I pick one? (laughs) Yeah. I guess generally even just really basic things like challenging victim blaming, which is quite you know, quite easy to say, but I think that we all really internalise these messages that we get fed through the media and through everywhere in our society. And so just really trying to unpack these these myths that have around, for people who experience violence, that it's not their fault ever. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Mm. What else do you think? Yeah, I think also maybe the causes of violence, like what causes violence. I think particularly in terms of family violence and sexual assault, there is still lots of these myths that exist about why that happens. Um... And so we also spend a lot of time talking about actually what are the key drivers from research. About. And what and what are some of those? So those, key, like, the, I guess the two central key drivers of family violence in particular are um, low support for gender equity um, and also strict adherence to rigid gender roles. And I think it's really interesting because I think most people would say, yeah, of course we want to stop violence against women, as an example. Um, but actually the research suggests that to do that one simple thing, or not simple thing we have to do, but one thing we have to do is really challenge the way that gender functions and sits in society, but that that is something that people are kind of less willing to invest in, I guess, Mm, in some ways. And some simple ways to do that, because these 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, there's lots of different things that are coming out. I work at a cafe to pay some bills and um, the local council around there have handed out cups. Um, They're still takeaway cups, but they've got children's pictures and depicting different ways to play with gender in their eyes. And so just different half-faces, different ways to do it. But working in that space, you get to communicate a lot with the customers and hear different people's interpretations. And because it was an orange lid, um, as soon as someone picked up their latte, whatever they were about to have, they're like, oh, what's this? And they'll ask about gender and the gender role. And then you read further in and it is, they're saying the hard-hitting point that they're going with is to play and to change those gender-based roles. And you really feel that that's an important thing to, to stem and stop this sort of gender-based violence that's happening a lot of the time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and because I guess most of the work we do at Undercurrent is very much built on uh, feminist frameworks, intersectional feminist frameworks that have been mostly developed by groups of women of colour in the States and elsewhere. Um, but we're also really interested, I guess, in expanding those frameworks as well. So while absolutely needing to look at the the gender-based power dynamics that contribute to the prevalence of violence, we also think it's really important to expand them to look at other dyna- like different dynamics of power 
We've particularly run some workshops recently on um, violence experienced by LGBTIQ people, which while has, you know, many parallels and similarities, there are also real specificities that we, there's still quite little research around. And mm. so we need to, yeah, keep talking about and keep addressing. I, I'm amazed that you had, uh, and, and it's fantastic, you had 100 people at a workshop. How did you work with 100 people? Did you have other facilitators come in? Yeah, so Undercurrent itself is actually a 100% volunteer-run organisation and we're also 100% self-funded. Um, and so I think for those public workshops, we had anywhere from about like 10 to 15 people who were there on the ground on the day. And so most of the work that we did was actually in small groups. I guess so much of our approach is about actually just starting conversations with people and having conversations about these things. So mostly it was a space where... You know, obviously we come with a certain skill set and certain understandings of these things. And it was mostly about us facilitating conversations with other people, also acknowledging that lots of other people who were coming to the workshops also had a lot to offer mm. in terms of skills and knowledge that they had. Mm. And how did that differ to, say, a school setting when you've taken it to, was it, has it been primary schools or high schools? High schools, yeah. How was that? How is that role? Is it the same sort of structure that Undercurrent works with in the school setting or is it... Yeah, pretty similar. We, we try and do a lot of small group work in schools as well. So we generally have three. Sometimes if it's a smaller group, we'll have two. But generally we have three facilitators in each class with a maximum of, like, maximum 30 kids. Sometimes they the schools push it to 30. Um, and so we'll do some work with the whole class together, but then also we'll try and do lots of small group work because I think often for people, particularly if we're talking about really heavy topics, mm. being in a small group... Um, allows more people to have a space to mm -hmm. talk about what they think and why they think that. Well, I imagine it would be quite hard. Sometimes you'd definitely come across some kids who have seen this at home. Um, and how do you navigate that space and make it safe and help that discussion bloom without it being too, I don't know, triggering or, or huge for an individual? Well, one thing that I guess I just stress is that we really... Uh, acknowledge and respect the strength of young people and their experience and knowledge. So, you know, in terms of the difference between these public workshops we ran and then the school's workshops, one of the main difference really is just that we had a lot more time in the public workshops over, a, you know, seven, seven um, different events to actually go into things in detail. But I think that when we do workshops with young people, I'm always blown away by how much they know and how much they've experienced. And I think that's really important to foreground that... Um, kids often know a lot more than we do <laughs> and we can learn heaps from them as well and yeah do you want to talk about how we sort of make that a space where people do feel like they can share things yeah so I think also at the basis of what we're doing is so much of it is about challenging victim blaming attitudes so already the the space that we're setting up and the questions that we are asking are kind of directly in line with that mm. I, I think we also acknowledge going in that we are talking about you know, really heavy things sometimes that a huge amount of people have experienced. Um, and so, you know, we'll set up a group agreement at the beginning of every um, workshop that we run to talk about and to get people thinking about how we might make that space as safe as possible, acknowledging that it's impossible probably to actually have a safe space for people talking about those things. Um, but then we also train all facilitators in terms of how to respond, say, if someone does during a workshop talk about experiences that they have had um, um, or if they are feeling triggered in that workshop. We do train all facilitators so they are able to respond in a way and support that person in, in that moment and then also check in afterwards. But mm. So, yeah, supporting people and acknowledging that that might happen is a really big part of 
preparation for going into run workshops. Yeah. It sounds like Undercurrent is great at listening and taking on board um, how people feel and respond to things and definitely honouring people's personal experience in this setting. How does Undercurrent um, finance itself or stay afloat and, and keep up? How can people support Undercurrent and the work it does? So we we do a big fundraiser maybe once a year which probably gives us the bulk of our running costs and also because we are 100% volunteer run organisation I guess compared to lots of other organisations who maybe what do what we do our expenses are not nearly as high um, we also if we're doing professional development workshops we ask for a donation from them which also gives us a little bit of I guess income less than our donations um, doing fundraising but that's about it really mm. Good on you. And how many people are involved in Undercurrent just at the, at the moment? I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe there's about 10 people who kind of hold like administrative roles mm-hmm. in terms of behind the scenes running of things. And I don't know, you know how many of the listers have run an organisation, but it takes a whole lot of work and there are a lot of different jobs that have to get done. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of amazing people doing all of that stuff. And then maybe we have another on top of that 15 people who are just facilitating or are in the process of being trained to be facilitators um mm. so maybe all up we 20, have 25. about 20 to 25 people well very good work <laughs> and um with the little communication we had before coming in here it sounds like you're both very busy doing different things and other things you were recently on um uh queering the air yeah. another 3cr program that runs on a friday sunday sunday, uh, sunday in your face runs on a friday mm. uh beautiful well listeners can get onto that and hear an, about an article you wrote i believe yeah in yeah, the new matilda. matilda yeah that's beautiful right. um thank you very much for coming in and talking to us um and sharing a little bit about what undercurrent does and if listeners want to get involved with undercurrent or hear or touch base and maybe learn a little bit off undercurrent what's the best way that they can do that so they can check us out on social media on instagram or on facebook um which is just undercurrent vic or can check out our website at www.undercurrentvic.com and i also would recommend that if people are interested in thinking about um support and i guess this is a little bit beyond what we're doing but also what undercurrent is about and where it comes from there is also the transformative justice network australia that has just been set up and they are running a um a facilitated discussion, I guess, on Sunday the 10th of December at RMIT, I guess to get people thinking about how we can respond when people do use violence in our communities, um, the ways that we can respond to them to kind of challenge and confront and stop that violence, but also how to support people who have experienced violence. So I'd also recommend that people check out our Facebook and check out that event. And stay up to date. Thank you both very much. I hope you enjoyed this beautiful Wednesday morning and leading into a hot afternoon, I believe. Thank you so much for having us on the program. It's been great. Great to hear about your work. Terrific work. Yeah. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. Featuring over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different modified sports and watch a disabled water skiing demonstration. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Friday the 1st of December from 10am to 3pm at Crown Riverwalk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Words out. 
freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. As Prime Minister of Australia, I am sorry. Coming live to you from the Aboriginal Ten Embassy in Canberra as part of the Sorry Day Convergence. And here comes Gilla. How you going, Gilla? How's it going, Gab? How's it going, uh, all you listeners down Melbourne? And you're missing a great time up here and uh, a great day. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio station bringing you coverage of community issues and events. We need your support. Call 9 419 8377 and subscribe today. We can't face the future now until we face the sorrow. I feel hopeful. I feel grateful. I feel sorry. As an Aboriginal person, let me shake your hand. Thanks very much for being here today. Thank you very much. No worries. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. You are on Wednesday Breakfast, 3CR Radio. We have Christy Lee on the phone to update us on a strike that's happening um, out at Women's Health out west. Are you there, Christy? Yeah, hi, Patty. Hi, Judith. Hello. Great to have you here. Thanks for being here, Christy Lee. So you're part of the um, Australian Services Union who's helping to organise the stop work at 10am today out at West Health. Yeah, that's right, at Women's Health West. So I am the organiser who's been working with the members and the delegates down at Women's Health West. We would have loved, the delegates would have loved to be uh, on the air today, but for a myriad of reasons there, um, they've asked me to represent them. Basically, what's going on at Women's Health West is members and delegates have been strong and negotiating with the employer for an EBA. It's been going on for nearly two years now. At the 11th hour, when the employer wasn't wanting to agree to some of the remaining claims, rather than continuing to bargain on the other claims, the employer has said, we're at an impasse, they've notified the staff, not the ASU, that they will no longer bargain with the ASU, who is the representative of the members. They've put their own EBA together without any involvement uh, from the union, and they're sending it, they've sent it out to the vote. And we still haven't received a copy from the employer and the voting period is about to commence. 
Oh, that is brutal to hear. It's a beautiful service that they offer and to go around and create an EBA without consulting all the employees and the union around this to check it out after it being a two-year long negotiation is quite a punch in the face to the workers there. That's right. These workers do some of the toughest jobs imaginable. They're highly skilled. They look after the most vulnerable in our community in the West. A lot of them live and work in the West. It's their community they work in. And for their employer to say, we don't need you involved in establishing the industrial conditions that will apply to you for the next few years is just outrageous. These workers just want the employer to get back to the bargaining table and talk to them. That's what they're trying to achieve through the stop work today. Mm. And what are the, what are the um, conditions that are out there that are really causing this, this drama? So there is quite a few claims that are uh, contentious. Some some extra claims have been put in there that we didn't bargain for at the table. There are some changes to um, on-call allowances that weren't agreed upon. There's um, a reduction in delegate leave, so um, a reduction in the entitlements for our elected delegates to go and get the proper training so they can sit at the bargaining table. There is a whole range of a reduction. There is some benefits in the enterprise agreement that have been put in, but one of the most outstanding matters that members have raised for the whole period is that they just want a review of their classifications. They believe they're underclassified. The employer has said to the staff that if they sign on to this agreement, they'll review their classifications. The members are coming back and saying, we want that in writing. We want to be able to hold you to that and to be able to have a fair process to have the classifications reviewed upon. Mm. And what does it mean for the um, service today with this stopping work? What's yeah, going to who, happen? It's a ten. It's I believe it's a thirty-minute stop work um, to show solidarity for a continuation of negotiation and sort of drawing a line. That's right. So it's from ten to ten thirty. It's down at three seventeen Barclay Street, Footscray. For anyone out there who can make it along, please show up this morning just to let the workers know you support them. Give them a call. Um, give the service a call. Let reception know that you support and you're um, showing solidarity with the workers. What the workers have decided, the members have decided to do, is take a half-hour stop work. There's a hard, soft approach saying, we are willing to stop work. Um, We understand that our clients need us, but we also need to have um, fair and just conditions in our workplace. So hopefully it's limited impact on clients. Women's Health West isn't a crisis service, so should their um, clients... Uh, come into a crisis situation which was unforeseen and unable to be planned for um, there will be management on site and there are also crisis services who should be able to deal with those situations oh, thanks Chrissy Lee for giving us an insight I'd love to learn a little bit more and here I understand that um, women's health is out west is a grass grassroots organization that started from the ground up and is now by the sounds of things got some um, bureaucrats in there that are not helping the situation at all Thank yeah, you so much for joining that's us. That's our understanding. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Patty. Thanks, Judith. Yeah, great to have you on the show this morning. And uh, we'll see if we can get out there. 10 o'clock. Excellent. 10 o'clock. Come and that... chat to the members. They'll let you know yes. the nitty-gritty from 10 to 10.30. Ask them any questions and they'll fill you in. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Christy Lee. Excellent. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's 317 Barclay Street, Fitzroy, Footscray, if you want to get down there and show support for Solidarity. It's happening at 10 p.m. We're just about out of time here at Wednesday Breakfast. 10 a.m., pardon me. I'm sure 10 p.m. would have been an outrageous time to get down there. I hope you can <laughs> check me on that one. Um, big thanks. So, so 10 a.m. this morning. 10 a.m. this morning down yeah. in Footscray. Yeah. I'll try to slow down. 
Um, it's <laughs> well, going to be well, a long day. you're just winding up the show, so you, you know the time is running out. Yeah. Um, big thanks to everyone who came along um, yeah. today. Yeah, Dr. Chris Limo, Iana um, Favero from ASRC, Sabella Turner from Ellis Springs Grandmothers Group, and Hilary Tyler from Shut Youth Prisons, and... We just spoke to Christy Lee then from the Australian Services Union and we spoke with Emily Castle and Matilda Stevens Castell. Oh, Castle, Castell. Um, Castle, um, we will... <laughs> I think... <laughs> we will be moving on. Stay tuned. Um, there's a show coming up that is way more together than I am right now. It's called Stick Together. Stay tuned <laughs> to Wednesday Breakfast. Next week, Nick will be back in the studio. Thank you so much for joining us and lending us your ears this morning. <laughs>